welcome to Dig Deep. Well, you may remember that I said last week that if you've ever found yourself in a pit, then you are in good company with the men and women of the Bible. Well, I got to tell you this morning, if you come from a dysfunctional family, you are in good company with the men and women of the Bible, including Joseph. So you all got to know Joseph a little bit better this week and get to know his family. It's quite the family dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting family. If we go back in Genesis to Genesis 29 through 35, we learn that Jacob, Joseph's father, had four wives. And he didn't just have four wives. Two of them are like legit wives, like real wives. And then two of them are servant wives. And we have this really weird family dynamic going on where there's like two teams of wives, like one real wife and her servant wife, and then the other real wife and her servant wife, and they're in this like weird race to see who can crank out the most kids, especially sons, because sons were like a status symbol in that society. And there's just some weird stuff going on. I mean, at one point, the two legit wives are like bartering to see who can have sex with Jacob on which night. And then eventually, when the older sons are grown up, the oldest son goes in and sleeps with one of the servant wives. I mean, if this was happening today, they'd be offered a reality TV show slot, I'm pretty sure, like the Real Housewives of Canaan or something like that. And you thought your family was messed up, but this family is kind of messed up. And then in the midst of this, we learn that Jacob clearly has a favorite wife, and her name is Rachel. And so it's no surprise that her firstborn son, Joseph, is Jacob's favorite kid. We read in Genesis 37, verse 3, Now Israel, which was Jacob's other name given to him by God, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. See, Jacob didn't get the memo that you aren't supposed to tell your kids which one of them is your favorite. You might have a favorite, but you're not supposed to tell them which one is your favorite. Many of you in this room know this, but those of you listening online probably don't know that I'm one of five kids, and my mom is actually part of Dig Deep. She is in Peggy Wolf's small group, which happens to be the small group that sits directly in front of me. They did last semester, too. That'll keep you honest as a speaker. Have your mama sit in the front row. So, Mom, I'm going to ask you this morning. Of the five of us kids... Eric is your favorite, isn't he? He's my favorite See, she always does that. She's like, you're my favorite oldest child. You're my favorite middle child. You're my favorite youngest child. See, my mom got the memo. You aren't supposed to tell your kids which one of them is your true favorite. But Jacob apparently didn't get that memo, and so his favoritism caused relational tension in his family, as it would in anyone's family. And really, Jacob should know better. If we go even further back in the book of Genesis... We learned that Jacob, he's a fraternal twin. He has a brother named Esau, and he grew up knowing very clearly that he was his mom's favorite and Esau was his dad's favorite. The problem for Jacob was that in their culture, all the inheritance and blessing came from the father and went to the oldest, and Esau was technically born first, so he was going to get all the inheritance, all of the blessing before Jacob. So Jacob's mom, remember he was his mama's favorite, helps him deceive their father to get his dying blessing on his deathbed, which, as you can imagine, made his brother Esau really, really angry. And Jacob had to live life on the run for a while because his brother was going to kill him. Do you see a family resemblance starting to happen here? 
But instead of learning from the dysfunctional favoritism in his own family, Jacob doesn't try to hide his favoritism. He doesn't even just hint that Joseph is his favorite. He makes it public by giving him special treatment, including this elaborate robe that clearly set him apart as the favorite in the midst of his brothers. Now, Joseph, we learn, is 17 when this is all happening. And I don't know many 17-year-olds who would handle that kind of attention, that kind of favoritism very well. And uh, we read in Genesis 37, we start to see just how tense the situation really is. In verse 2, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. And then we see in verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him, loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So we see Joseph tattling on his brothers, in a sense, bringing a bad report about them, and then his brothers seeing that their father loved him more than any of them, it says they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. So we don't get a ton of detail here, but I get the sense that these two verses are just examples of how bad the situation had gotten. I don't think the text is suggesting that Joseph tattled on them once and then he got this fancy robe and then they hated him intensely. I think that this relationship had grown more and more strained over time. I imagine that Joseph's brothers had been feeling a building resentment toward Joseph over 17 years of being consistently sidelined by their father again and again while Joseph is favored. See, I don't think the word hated that's used here is used lightly, like temperamental teenagers who might yell, I hate you, at their siblings or their parents. These are adult men who hate this brother so much that they are planning to kill him, to actually murder their brother. That's some serious pent-up resentment and hatred, and you don't just get there overnight. I get the sense that Joseph's brother's feelings toward him had moved over time from maybe annoyance to anger to resentment, eventually to full-blown hatred. Last week, we asked the question in our group, is there an area of your life where you feel stuck? And for many of us, that area involves a strained relationship in our lives a strained marriage, or a situation where you're still picking up the pieces from a relationship that shattered years ago, or you're currently in a relationship with siblings or coworkers or a boss that has moved from annoyance to anger to resentment and maybe full-blown hatred. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Joseph's story starts with his relationships, because all of our stories start with relationships. If you were to tell someone your life story, you would probably begin with your relationships. Our relationships are the very center of our stories, and for better or worse, our relationships are a huge part of who we are. And so as we meet Joseph and as we start this journey with him, we see that Joseph has both loving relationships in his life and contentious relationships in his life, like we all do. So let's keep reading in Genesis 37. We see that Joseph's relationship with his brothers is about to reach the breaking point because Joseph has a few prophetic dreams. In verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, we do need to be careful here to make any harsh judgments one way or the other about Joseph's character because the text isn't very explicit about his tone or his motives in all of this. 
My guess is that he probably leaned one of two directions. He's either really naive as a 17-year-old. He's like, you guys will not believe this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain, and then mine stood upright, and all of yours came and bowed down to me. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy? Or I do think there's a chance that he shares this information with them with a little bit of a cocky edge. Like, you guys won't believe this dream I had, but it seems to be prophetic, and we were binding sheaves of grain, and I don't know, but yours all bowed down to me. That's all I'm saying. We don't know what his tone was or what his motives were in sharing his dreams. Maybe he's cocky. Maybe he's naive. Maybe he's neither. We don't know. But there is no way for us to miss the tone of his brother's response. In verse 8, his brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Unfortunately, Joseph doesn't pick up on the really strong we hate you vibe that his brothers are sending him because he has another dream and he decides it would be a good idea to share it with them and with his parents. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told, this, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So we don't know exactly what Joseph is thinking or feeling, but we can see a glimpse of his immaturity in some of these exchanges. He has some very interesting dreams that seem to be prophetic, and they point to him ruling over his older brothers and essentially his whole family bowing down before him, but he doesn't seem to have the emotional maturity or the filters to handle that information delicately. Have you ever met someone who doesn't have any filters? You know what I'm talking about? They have a thought, and then it like immediately falls out of their mouth. Well, Joseph doesn't seem to have developed too many filters yet. He has a topic in his head. He had this dream, and so he feels like he absolutely needs to share it. Now, granted, he's only 17 years old. And when I look back at my 17-year-old self, oh, heavens, when I look back at my 17-year-old self and compare to myself now, my mom is making quite the face. I just wish I could go back and hug her and be like, you know, Jess, just because you have a thought, you don't need to share it. Just... You don't have to share everything that comes into your head. I didn't have a ton of filters. I'm grateful that now, almost 20 years later, I have developed some filters. I still have a long way to go, but I have developed some filters. One of my favorite podcasters, Julie Richard, of a podcast called Fearless Mom, puts it perfectly. She says, timing and tone are always more important than topic. Timing and tone are always more important than topic. I love that. I am going to try to live by that truth. See, Joseph apparently wasn't subscribed to the Fearless Mom podcast because he didn't do that. He had a topic in his head. He didn't worry about the timing or the tone. He didn't have the emotional sensitivity, and so he blurts it out, and his relationships suffer. So here's what I want us to do today. I want us to start this semester off by taking an honest inventory of our relationships. When Jesus was asked by a teacher of the law, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus immediately replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, Mark 12, 30 to 31. Jesus said the greatest commandment, what should be the greatest priority in our lives, is not a set of achievements, it's not a list of tasks to be completed, not spiritual boxes to be checked, it's love. 
It's love. Jesus was teaching that there is nothing more important than relationships, a loving relationship with the God who created you and loves you and a loving relationship with others. And so, just as Joseph's story starts with his relationships, we're going to start this semester with our own relationships. We're going to take an inventory of our relationships. So first, we need to talk about our relationship with God. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so which of those four areas might you need to lean in to your relationship with God this week? If you're taking notes, I encourage you, I encourage you to just write those four words down. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Heart, soul, mind, strength. And consider, is there one of those where maybe you need to take a step forward this week? See, I personally find myself leaning toward naturally loving God with my mind and my strength. It's my personality, I guess. I don't know. I spend most of my time with God reading or studying or strategizing or doing something. If I sit down and spend time with God, that's what I naturally find myself doing. I have a hard time slowing down and letting my heart and my soul worship God and move toward him in love. I have two key places in my world where I do slow down with God. The first is our closet in our bedroom that we turned into a quiet time nook with a comfy chair in there. And the second is a large rock that juts out into the river by my house. And I run by it every time I take a run outside. God and I have had some really important moments on that rock and in that closet. But in busier seasons of life, I tend to run right by both of those places my mind racing with plans and actions. And I can relatively accurately measure the health of my heart by how much time I've spent on that rock and in that closet. And so what is it for you? Maybe you're like me and you really need to force yourself to slow down, to take a walk outside, to just listen to worship music, to spend some time praying out loud on a rock or in a closet or wherever, maybe to write a prayer of praise or gratitude to God in your journal. Or maybe those things come more naturally to you, but you need to finally start that book that you know will deepen your understanding of God. Maybe you need to push forward in strength, in a spiritual discipline, in fasting from something, memorizing scripture, carving out time in your schedule to read your Bible every day. What is it for you? I want to encourage you right now to look at those four words in your journal, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and just circle the one that's standing out to you as an area where maybe you need to take a step toward God in love this week. Okay, so we also have to take an inventory of our other relationships. He says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question is, am I loving others the way I would want to be loved? And this is so simple. We have all heard this before. You probably heard the golden rule before you even knew it was in the Bible. But are we living this way? That's what it comes down to. Remember, if we're going to dig deep, it means we listen and then we obey. We go and do the thing that we've heard. Are we loving the people in our lives the way that we want to be loved? Does someone need my forgiveness? I would want to be forgiven. Is there a relationship in my life that's requiring more patience than I feel like I can give? I would want someone to be patient with me. Does someone need me to serve them in some way? I would want to be loved like that. Is there someone that I'm taking for granted? I don't want to be taken for granted. A few weeks ago, 
Ben and I had a rough morning. There were a lot of miscommunications and misunderstandings about who was carrying which responsibilities and doing which things for which children. We had some short exchanges. And by the time he left for work and I left to drive the kids to school, I was thinking, who does he think he is, this man? And so later that morning, I was enjoying my second cup of coffee and reflecting on all of my husband's shortcomings. And all of a sudden, I was convicted. And I had this picture of him sitting in his office, drinking a cup of coffee, reflecting on all my shortcomings. And the image made me mad. I thought I wouldn't want him sitting there thinking about all the ways that I fall short, because there's a lot of them. So I knew I needed to take some sort of small step. I wasn't ready to call him and talk to him and apologize. So it might sound stupid or really, really simple, but I decided to change the lock screen picture on my phone from a picture of my kids to a picture of the two of us over the summer on the beach, looking into each other's eyes, laughing on a clearly better day than we were having that day. And even looking at that picture when I first changed it kind of annoyed me a little bit. But I told myself, every time I see this today, I'm going to think of something that I'm grateful for about my husband. And you know what? By the time I did see him later that day, I was ready to apologize. And thankfully, he received that apology, and he apologized to me, and we were able to take steps toward each other in love. See, to really love others as you love yourself, I believe, is in the small things. A lot of times we make it this big thing. It, it ends up becoming this major thing in our life, but usually it's, it's simple. It's just the little things, but it is difficult because it feels like work in the moment. But I want to encourage you, don't stand there with your arms crossed waiting for that person to change. Because here's the temptation. And this, I, I think we see this in Joseph's story. I think the temptation, when we have someone in our life that is just kind of driving us crazy, is to think, everyone else in my life thinks I'm awesome. It's clearly this person's problem. Everybody else thinks I'm the greatest. And that's something that we see in Joseph's story. There's this pattern that Jacob loved Joseph but his brothers hated him. See, it is totally possible for some people to love you to pieces and think that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread and others to think that you are literally the worst. It is possible. It's, it's not fun. It's not fun truth, but it is true. So don't fall into the trap of writing off a relationship because it's difficult thinking, well, all my other relationships are great, so I don't know what that person's problem is, so I'm just going to stand here with my arms crossed and wait for them to get their act together because everybody else seems to think I'm great. We need to take the small steps. We need to lean into the hard work because it is hard work of maintaining healthy relationships, knowing that they're at the heart of God's creative design for us. The greatest commandment revolves around loving relationships with God and with others. And I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're thinking, Jess, yeah, this isn't about a minor spat with my spouse, you know, on a Wednesday morning. This is about a life-altering relational fracture. And I promise you, I have those in my life too. I do. I want to encourage you, just take the next small step of love. Ask God to show you what it is. Just take the next small step. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
So as we read Joseph's story, I want you to consider over the course of the semester how he grows as a relational being. Because the events that are going to take place in Joseph's life are pretty remarkable, but the changes in Joseph's relationships are equally remarkable. Because relationships require work. And we're going to see throughout Joseph's story that he is willing to lean into the hard work of relationships, both his relationship with God and his relationship with others, specifically with his brothers. And here's something I really want you to know this morning. I believe that there is no relationship that is beyond redemption. There's not a single one. Your relationship with your spouse, your spouse's relationship with God, your kid's relationship with each other, your relationship with that person that you haven't seen or spoken to in a decade because of what they did or said or what you did or said. I genuinely believe that there is no relationship that is beyond redemption. And we are going to see that, praise God, lived out in the life of Joseph. This past week um, has been an emotional one for me, and I just want you to know that life is too short and too brutal to neglect our relationships. And I promise you that you will never regret the work that you put into loving other people. Because relationships break down, they do. But on the really, really hard days or when tragedy comes to the door, you'll be glad for the work that you've invested because relationships are at the center of who we are. It's how God created us. And this week, I've just been hit again and again with that phrase, life is too short and too brutal to neglect our relationships. It is. So today we're going to take an inventory of our relationships and together I want us to answer a couple questions. We're going to do this in our small group time. I encourage you to write these down in your journal. The first is this. What can I do to practically take a step toward God in love this week? You can write that in your own words if you want. What, what practical step can I take in my relationship with God this week? Consider which of those four words you circled, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and just look for one small practical thing. Don't don't try to totally overhaul your whole life and do all of the things and love him with all of the areas of all of your soul. Just choose one and take one step. The second is what can I do to practically take a step towards someone else in love this week? And you can apply that same principle. Start small. Don't feel like you need to go and solve everything in that relationship. Take one step toward that person in love. And the third is I, I just want you to reflect on the relationships in your life, and ask, what relationship in my life needs total redemption from the pit? What relationship in my life needs total redemption from the pit? And then is there one step I can take this week to partner with God in that process? Let's pray, and we'll have some small group time together. God, thank you for this morning, for, um, for your word, for your beautiful design of your creation that you placed relationships at the center of who we are, at the center of our stories. But God, relationships are hard, and we see in Joseph's story just how fractured his relationships have become. 
And we are all living that reality in our different relationships in one way or another. And so I pray, God, that you would bring to our hearts and our minds today the steps that we need to take in our relationship with you this week, but also in our relationship with others, maybe even someone where our relationship needs total redemption from the pit. Help us to see the steps that we can practically take this week. Thank you, God, for your love that you never give up on your relationship with us and that you took the greatest step toward us to redeem that relationship. It's because of that grace that we know that it's possible for us to live at peace with everyone else around us. Thank you, God, for that grace. We worship you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.